mosquitoes in Hawaii are friggin' huge, man. <laughs> I'm Andrea, one of the hosts of the Voice of San Diego podcast. Every week, I get together with the other editors at Voice and explain the news that matters in San Diego. Elections, politics, law enforcement, big investigations, and some fun stuff. The great palm tree debate, ranked choice voting, bike lane mania. It's great journalism and a lot of fun. Every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Voice of San Diego. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 14 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. Today, Nick Berardi, the 2022 U.S. Roasting Champion and the head roaster at Moster Coffee Company, joins the show from Hawaii, where he was enjoying the perks of being a champion and also coming face-to-face with some big effing mosquitoes. This is the first of a two-part interview with Nick, and we're going to get started by covering his journey to coffee, and more specifically to Mostra, along with his thoughts on how coffee contributes to society. Nick is incredibly well-spoken, and there were long moments during this conversation where I just stepped back to listen, and then had to actually shock myself back into the conversation. Also, and this should be obvious by now, I'm not a math and science guy. I'm a story guy. So about halfway through this chat, I tried to do some math, and I am way, way off. More on that after the interview. While you're listening today, check out at Moster Coffee on Instagram and MosterCoffee.com. You can find those links in the show notes or subscribe to this show's newsletter on RoastWestCoast.com. Before we get started, I want to say thanks to you for hitting the little play button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to today. And I hope this show has inspired you to get out and pick up a cup of coffee from your favorite local coffee roaster. If you haven't left yet, that's okay. This podcast can go with you. Enjoy part one of this interview with Nick Berardi, head roaster of Moster Coffee Company. Check that. Champion head roaster of Moster Coffee Company. First of all, before we get too far, thank you for for doing this. I'm sure you're busy. I think you're, are you in Hawaii? Yeah. Yeah, happy happy to do this. Uh, Happy we could make it work. Um, I am in Hawaii right now as a part of the prize for um, winning the U.S. Roasters Championship was a uh, uh, free trip to Hawaii, which of course turned into just like anything, anything, nothing's truly free. I will say that the people at Saver Brands have uh, spared no expense. I'm up in this sweet ass resort, and uh, <laughs> and they're treating me really well. And their employees that are out here that have been showing me around have been really great. Went to a coffee farm yesterday. I have to put together a presentation to give to the Hawaii Coffee Association. That's basically done. And by the time this goes out, it will be. <laughs> See, seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Small price to pay. I mean, uh, I'm absolutely. I'm a person who uh, really enjoys talking about our craft and uh, and what we do. And so when it comes to that, you know, if that's what I got to do to get a free trip to Hawaii, you know, that's not too bad. Not too bad at all. And on that note, I should have you introduce yourself so people know who I'm talking to. 
if you wouldn't mind just who you are, uh, what you do, and uh, maybe what your favorite Ninja Turtle is. My name is uh, Nick Berardi. I'm the head roaster at Mostra Coffee. I profile coffee, help sourcing the coffee, typical head roaster duties, but also Moster is a company that um, a lot of us wear a lot of hats in, and, and that's emphasized by uh, the, the ethos behind everything at Moster being performance or exhibition. And so uh, we all push ourselves to perform you know, outside of our comfort spheres, even just on a day-to-day stuff, you know, helping with logistics or anything like that. So uh, my main focus is cupping as much coffee as I can and roasting and sourcing, but uh, we all dabble in a lot of little stuff. My favorite Ninja Turtle has really changed over time, but I would probably say uh, Raphael. I used to be a Donatello kind of guy, but, hey, you know, it just, it just feels, it feels more, if I said Donatello, I feel like I'd be lying to myself right now. (laughs) I think I grew up as a Michelangelo guy, but I am also a Raphael guy. You know, as an adult, you start to maybe appreciate the fact that he was the adult in the in the turtle shell as a young yeah. man. Yeah, I mean, I remember the uh, the second quote unquote live action movie he challenged uh, Leonardo's leadership. That's right. I may <laughs> have watched that recently, as I am want to do every uh, every annum. I, I really do appreciate you being here. I know you are technically on vacation. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that and for the time and for just doing this podcast. I, I've seen a bunch of TV spots and new spots come out since your victory. But I want to go back in time a little bit and just ask you, what were you doing before Mostra? And maybe did you have like a first coffee experience that set you down this path? You know, Well, I do want to say thanks for having me on. Um, it's been something that I haven't necessarily been like purposefully, you know, obscuring myself from the public. Um, But just uh, my tenure in San Diego coffee has mostly been behind the scenes stuff. The news interviews and things like that, I mostly just stand there and wave and say a sentence before they cut (laughs) you off. So I'm really happy to be here to actually, you know, be able to speak at length about some coffee stuff. And uh, and I think you you do a great thing with your podcast and all the coffee smarter stuff. So thanks for having me on. Uh, In terms of, I guess I'll answer the the second part of the question first, because that's the part that uh, I remember. (laughs) Is uh, my first... uh, like kind of wow coffee experience happened uh, when I was still living back in Columbus, Ohio. And um, this is where I grew up. And I had worked at a local second wave coffee shop throughout my days at Ohio State uh, undergrad. And then beyond that time, I worked at, you know, a place that had like 15 different flavors of mochas. And got into managing and stuff like that. And then I um, I thought I, I quit and I was thinking about moving. And then I, I decided to stay in Columbus and ended up cooking fine dining at a, a real great restaurant. Shout out to uh, Chef Dave Tesloff if you're ever in Columbus, Ohio. Place got named uh, like best restaurant in the city a couple years running. I didn't really have much to do that, but I got to cook there. <laughs> and some of the people that I had met through the... Uh, the second wave kind of coffee shop kind of stuck more with the coffee industry and evolved and, and, and with third wave stuff as it hit Columbus, Ohio and like, you know, 2006, 2008, stuff like that. Um, my first like wow experience with coffee was uh, from a place that I ended up working for 
two or three years before I moved to San Diego at a place called Cafe Brioso. I had a, a Costa Rica Perla Negra, and that was the first time I had had that uh, natural processed pea berry, just delightful coffee, richness, and just like overwhelming sweetness. And I shared it with some of the servers at uh, at the restaurant. They were all just like, whoa, is this coffee? You know, you've heard some of the stories of that, but I ended up uh, splitting time between working at the restaurant and working at the coffee shop. And working at the coffee shop made me realize that the uh, the lifestyle that I was living at the restaurant wasn't going to be sustainable. And so I opted for uh, the wake up at four in the morning rather than going to sleep at two in the morning kind of thing. And that's when I got into a uh, third wave coffee. That's really interesting that the lifestyle part of it was part of your decision-making process. Uh, I also came up in restaurants and fine dining, and there was definitely, in retrospect, a burning of the candle You know that takes a toll on you, and at some point, you have to make a choice. Do yeah. I want to keep doing this? Not everything's like Anthony Bourdain's book, you know, and I, we weren't doing like crack in the back or anything like that. No, no, I, no, no. I assume that's in the book. I haven't read it. <laughs> I've seen some of his uh, his travel shows. And and yeah, I mean, it was um, not all kitchens are like that. But some of the guys I worked with that I hung out with, there was, you know, some some hard living. And, you know, I just kind of had to make a decision um, that I wasn't seeing myself advancing through, you know, the culinary arts. But I did already know how coffee in general worked uh, in terms of like the practicalities of opening and closing and managing a coffee shop. I didn't have a lot of experience with potential of what modern coffee has become or had become at that point and has continued to evolve into. And, uh, and that's something that I'm grateful for making that decision. So at that point in your career, you're still in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, what happens next? What brings you West, you know, and kind of where did you end up once you got out here? Well, I uh, ended up um, staying in contact with some friends who had uh, moved across the country. And um, after a little while uh, in Columbus, I just kind of realized I needed a change of scenery. And I'd gotten in contact with a friend, uh, Heather Brisson, now Heather Brisson Lutz. She had worked at the, the the place I worked with, like all the candy bar drinks, had another side to the company where people were more dedicated to the craft of the coffee. And she worked on that side with my other uh, good friend at the time, John Herman. Both of them uh, ended up taking different routes to San Diego. John had moved to Florida first and then ended up moving to San Diego. Heather moved to Oregon and worked in Portland at Cova and Albino Press and some really awesome places and then came down to San Diego. And um, and I would mention uh, before you go too much further that John is here, I believe, running interim or has interim coffee in San yeah. Diego, correct? And Heather is in Hawaii. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, is it Origins Coffee or? Origin Coffee Roasters in Maui. And John and a guy named uh, Ray run a place called uh, Interim that's out of Carlsbad. I uh, recommend checking uh, both places out. One's easier to get to when you're in San Diego, but uh, Heather <laughs> ships uh, a lot of great coffee out too. So I crashed on John's couch till I could find a place to live. Heather got me a job um, working part-time at Bird Rock. And so in order to make the move, I kind of gave away all my crap, uh, got a little uh, Subaru Outback station wagon, popped a everything I could that fit in the car with enough room for my dog to lay on top of it and drove across country in about two and a half days. Um, started working at Bird Rock and 
worked my way up through there from covering barista shifts and working, you know, just part-time hours, trying to flesh out, filling mail orders and doing deliveries, doing anything I could, cupping any opportunity I could. And I got to grow with that company. I got to learn a lot of stuff from uh, uh, Heather and uh, Chuck Patton, the founder of Bird Rock, and got to really expand what I did in the company. I apprenticed under Heather uh, Roasting for a little bit. It turned into something that uh, as the company was growing because, you know, Chuck was sourcing such great coffee and Heather was roasting such great coffee that my apprenticeship was all for naught because we switched from back in the day, uh, the 15 kilo geese into a 35 kilo Loring. And so it was more of instead of needing another roaster, we needed somebody to go out and uh, sell coffee and uh, help pay for the new roaster. So, um, yeah, you know, I joke about that, but uh, I got uh, my hands in sales, logistics, uh, you know, uh, online platforms, uh, more into sourcing, training, wholesale, some accounting, so, you know, just uh, kind of got to got my feet wet across the board. And then when Chuck sold the company when it was bought by Jeff Taylor. The The avenue that I felt like I was working towards was not something that was any uh, any longer going to be available to me. Uh, Jeff's a real gregarious, nice guy. You know, he knows what he's doing. I just didn't uh, see myself going the same direction as the company at that time. So I left that. I worked at another place that was uh, part of a restaurant group that was part of an investment firm. And I had personality clash with some people there. And I, I wasn't at a great spot in my life and ended up leaving there. And that's what led me to Mostra, just like how uh, Heather and John helped me, uh, you know, by easing the move to San Diego and kind of getting me into a good spot. I ended up uh, reaching out to Ryan Sullivan, the director of coffee and operations and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, at Mostra. And he was able to say, yeah, you know, we can get you some part time barista shifts. And just like at Bird Rock, I started working a little bit part time and, you know, got to know the owners really well, got to know the structure got to start helping out in production and, you know, making all types of adjuncts and cold brews and things. And one of the big tipping points for me uh, in this uh, abbreviated narrative of this is my life is uh, when Stone Brewing Company placed their, uh, what was at the time, annual order with Moster Coffee. I, I'm, I'm a little hazy on the details, but something along the lines of Stone Brewing, it had uh, an open competition for home brewers years previous. And the person who won that brewing competition had made a coffee beer with Mostra Coffee. And they ended up hiring that guy and making the coffee beer a recurring thing, the Stone Choco Vesa. And then the year that I was at 2019, that summer, I was picking up shifts, uh, slanging lattes and creme brulee and uh, torching some drinks at uh, Mostra. Uh, Stone placed an order for 24,000 pounds of coffee because they wanted to go uh, interna or international bottling the coffee beer, I think it was. So that was a situation where it was anybody who had ever touched a roaster, it was all hands on deck. And so I got my experience roasting on um, our now 30-year-old 30, 30 uh, SF25 San Franciscan named uh, Felicita uh, at Mostra. And from there, I just um, kind of just settled into roasting for Mostra. I just did some rough math on that. And just let's just say 15 minutes of roast, you know, for dropping it in and pulling it out. And that could be a wrong time. That's just a rough number. That's 6,000 hours of roasting. <laughs> yeah. 24,000 pounds of coffee. It was, it was something along there. Yeah. I mean, um, it was a, 
hazy in recollection and also hazy at the time because they were asking us to grind the coffee. And this was mid-August in uh, Carmel Mountain Valley. So uh, right in front of the roaster was reaching temperatures close to 110 degrees. And then every couple batches, uh, you know, every five or six hours, we had to uh, take a little bit of a break so the roaster could kind of cool down just a hair. Um, which was not any relief to myself or Ryan or Mike or Alan or anybody else that was roasting because when we stopped roasting, we had to turn around and grind the coffee and just get covered in all the nice little fine chaff coming off the grinder, clogging up your pores, making those hot days even more enjoyable. But it was enjoyable for me because I was getting to do something that I'd never really had any designs on being a roaster. You know, I love the extraction and the science and the sourcing of coffee and stuff, but I had always worked, you know, we mentioned John and Heather, I'd always worked with people that were great at roasting coffee. And so I never sat down and drank a coffee and thought to myself, hey, I want to do that instead. Being behind the machine at uh, Mostra and then just kind of, you know, plowing through a couple, you know, thousands of pounds of coffee and, you know, kind of getting into the rhythm, seeing how things worked, seeing what could be done and and what you can learn while you're roasting coffee was really cool thing for me yeah i think roasting is interesting in that somebody could go from never roasting to working on a sample roaster and getting something that they felt like wow this actually tastes like something i want to drink fairly quickly but then it there's a whole nother leap every step is like this huge leap and everyone feels kind of epic and you kind of did them all in a day in a, in a short period of time, not a day, but uh, with that big with that big order, I think even like new roasters, Chris O'Brien at Coffee Cycle hasn't been roasting long, but I love the coffees that they're dialing in and bringing out. But you could tell like he he learned he had this base of uh, experience and then got on the roaster, and as he was roasting and seeing what was happening in the roaster, he was learning and building uh, intelligence every single time that they were they were on that machine. Oh yeah, Chris is a is super intuitive about that stuff. We had worked together back in the in the OG Bird Rock days as well, and I remember it was a couple months after I got hired. He was already established uh, as a barista there. I mentioned something about malic acid in the coffee, and he just took that and ran with it. <laughs> and uh, because he, you know, it, it it takes all kinds, and there are roasters like Chris who just like you know sponge up knowledge and and you know because of that become roasters. For me, like all the big steps, it wasn't really that big of a thing, partially because that, you know, crash course and uh, jumping and, you know, diving into the deep end with roasting was just a bunch of dark roast Brazil. And the the window on that's pretty easy. You know, I did, you know, we have the, you know, the technology and everything to be super consistent with it. But those those graphs didn't involve anything that was uh, difficult as a roaster. And so being the type of person, you know, like Chris, who, you know, presented with knowledge or the opportunity to learn, I'm going to grab every single book, every single blog, everything I could. And I was already pretty familiar with once I got familiar with actually the the practical operation of a machine and, uh, you know, warm up, cool down between batch procedures, designing the basic idea of a profile, it wasn't really anything that was too daunting because it, it, it's something that actually it's, it's funny. It comes up in almost every conversation that 
we have a bunch of sayings in coffee and a bunch of people have different ones. I know we had uh, the top three back in the bird rock days, but Ryan and I uh, at Moster always have, uh, you know, the first thing we say is, does it taste good? And that's, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the back there, I'm toasting these little seeds up. That's the main thing is, does it taste good? And as long as I make sure that I, uh, I don't F it up, they're going to taste good because we buy really good coffee. The question is, can I make the coffee excel by my roast? And that's where it's pushing um, every day, cupping every single batch, even if I don't want to, just because there's there's going to be something to learn there. On this path, it sounds like you were fairly, uh, once you made the call you, in this, this shortened version of your story, fairly passionate about about what you were doing, was there ever a point that you thought, you know what, maybe I should do something else and maybe coffee wasn't the right decision? Or did that never really hit you? No, not yet. I mean, I realized there's going to be a point where I don't work in coffee. I remember, you know, back, uh, back in the, the wee days when I was still like a high school wrestler getting home late from a, a long practice, my dad had, uh, waited to have dinner with me and there was an article in time magazine on the little kitchen island and it was all about how oh with the advances in medical science if you're born in x year you're going to live this many years and and it, uh, you know the the conversation we had about that article was kind of almost a takeaway of well no matter what you choose to do for a living don't worry about it because you're going to have to have you know three careers at least during your lifetime based upon how long we're going to live so you know, I had some ups and downs in coffee and in my personal life during coffee. And I didn't really see any reason to stray away from that because I hadn't achieved anything yet. And so the, you know, there weren't roadblocks, there were just hurdles and, you know, you just stretch and overcome your hurdles. And that was, you know, why I wanted to stick with whatever I could do in coffee, because I mean, Part of it is I just love the damn stuff. <laughs> I'm drinking this uh, this really super awesome pod coffee in this hotel on the Big Island of Hawaii that I'm very grateful to be at. And it's not my you know cup of tea, but at the same time, it's still coffee. It's still it's still delightful in a just a basic, almost visceral sense to me. And the idea of coffee, you know. Even just coffee as a commodity that, you know, it could be anywhere from the first to the fifth most traded commodity in the world. This has an impact, has an ability to contribute back to so many people's lives and, and so many lives that, you know, are on the impoverished side of things. And so, you know, that's a super overarching, altruistic, like could sound like a talking point thing, but the, the idea of contributing is what really, you know, I always looked for in coffee. And that's something that really drew me to Mostra. Um, the, the mission of the company being that two of the uh, founders of the company, Jalyn and Beverly, went on a trip to the Philippines and they came back trying to figure out how to start a business to help eliminate poverty in the islands that uh, where their ancestors were from. And that's just, you know, that speaks to my heart on a daily basis. That is something I was going to ask about. One is Moster is incredibly prolific uh, with coffees coming out constantly, coffees from all over the world. But you do have this special focus on coffees from the Philippines, which is unique in the industry, at least uh, here in this area. In I'm wondering if in your experience, if there are regional traits that you associate with the Philippines, what is it that coffees from that area offer that maybe you don't get in other places or that set them apart? Well, there are a lot of layers to that. I mean, even just beginning on the, the, the idea that coffee from the Philippines isn't very common, 
pre-World War II uh, Philippine specialty uh, Arabica coffee. They were the fifth largest producer of Arabica coffee in the world. Different socioeconomic and geopolitical forces changed that over the years, but they were, you know, right up there with uh, with Brazil and, you know, Colombia and, and countries like that, that you think of when you think of a mass output. No, no reason to get into why those things changed. I wasn't there and, and that could strike some nerves with some people, but kind of trying to do what we can to reawaken Philippine coffee as specialty coffee in a lot of people's consciousness is um, uh, multiple hurdles. It's not just overcoming people's preconceptions of, oh, coffee from Southeast Asia is generally bought up by Nestle or it's commodity grade or it's Robusta. I mean, there's plenty of that stuff going on too, but there's, there's a lot of great coffee out of there too. The logistics part of it though, there's so many islands in the Philippines that getting the actual coffee or finding, you know, the best coffee is something that we're going to have to continue to evolve our approach to. The company that uh, Mostra historically has worked with, Calzada, Calzada means roads or builder of roads. And they literally build roads to farmers so that they can get to the, to the mill because uh, we're talking about some treacherous travels up some mountainsides and things like that. So there are all those layers to it and what it manifests in, in the cup, because Calzada is able to work with farmers on, on uh, certain techniques, harvesting, uh, and then they process mainly at their own mills. Although they're, we've experimented with some farmer processed lots from, uh, from the Philippines in the past couple of years. The coffee does end up pretty consistent. You would think that, uh, like many other co-op blends, you would have a lot of variants, but there, there really isn't the screen size. The, the, the size of the, uh, the green coffee beans uh, is really tight uh, in terms of what we, uh, what we get. And uh, it roasts kind of differently. There are mainly typica dissension uh, varietals that we end up dealing with. Um, the coffee, a lot of times, will have some more like kind of stimpling on the surface uh, during roasting if we take it in between like a city and a full city because of the moisture migration is a little bit different just from the growing conditions. And you're going to see that with uh, other regions too, but uh, harvesting, you know, and especially, you know, rainy season in uh, Southeast Asia means, you know, rainy season. <laughs> and, you know, that's you know, one of the reasons why historically you see uh, you know, Giling Basah processing out of Sumatra. Uh, Indonesia is kind of in that, you know, it's in that same Oceania. And that's a place where when they harvest coffee, they don't even try to try to mill it traditionally because it's just like, we're not going to get this dry. It's going to rain. So the effort that Calzada and other uh, exporters and millers in the Philippines put in is more arduous uh, for the for the same level of results that you get some other places. Uh, the cup profiles typically tend towards lightly floral, kind of pleasantly nutty. You know, there's all those things that you have an educated coffee crowd, and there's some things that even in an educated coffee company we don't talk about. Like for Sumatran coffees, we'll say rustic instead of uh, tastes like dirt. <laughs> you know, or, or, uh, there are things like that, you know, Brazil coffee always has that weird, like, um, 
uh, boiled peanut aspect to it. Uh, and similarly, uh, Philippine coffee, uh, which we do also get um, some Garnica varietals, which were uh, mostly from Mexico, uh, I believe, historically. Uh, those those varietals and the typicos that are grown out there usually end up with a, a hint of like a peanut skin uh, characteristic. But the way I'm able to manipulate the uh, the modulation of the of the roast, I'm usually able to cover that up and try to bring out more of like a honeysuckle. It's it's overall a creamier, light, medium cup of coffee. The way we roast most of the Philippine coffee that we get. You mentioned something earlier that has me thinking about the journey the coffee takes to get to you uh, in San Diego to roast. Being a roaster that is working in coffee from the Philippines now and among coffees from around the world, if it is that much more arduous and if there are stereotypically less roasters using it, I would imagine that it's more expensive to get here and the logistics are that much more challenging. Yeah. Which means you're providing a coffee to the public that has more of an impact on you as a company as well. Yeah. I mean, um, not gonna, not gonna throw, you know, dollars and cents out there. I will, I will talk about it in terms of, you know, what, you know, any roasters or people that buy green coffee from Sweet Maria's or other places that are home roasters to listen to your podcast will in general know what a micro lot these days costs or even a, a regional micro blender or micro regional blender or something like that. Most of the coffee we buy from Philippines, we're paying uh, two to two and a half times as much for it. And it's, uh, something that we have had some experimental lots with them that produce extreme cup quality differences and will be in the, you know, the high 80s. But otherwise, it's scoring just like, you know, like a, a coffee that we bring in. We brought in the past couple of years, Columbia Passiflora is a micro regional blender out of uh, uh, Wheeler region of Columbia. And it's, it's a real great standard cup of coffee. It's not going to be something that you like most coffees don't perk your ears up you know it's not going to be like oh what the heck's going on here i you know flavor spacing and stuff like that really just great coffees um that you know we're not talking about your 96 point coffee review things those those things we're we're paying more for not just to cover the disparity in the logistics that they have to put up for in the Philippines, um, but because we willingly at Mostra pay more for those coffees to make sure more money goes back to the farmers. Just like there's been opportunities in the past to, um, you know, uh, importers may offer us a discount on uh, Brazil or something like that to, you know, because we're buying so much of it at certain points. And it's just like, just, take the difference and give it back to the farmers. We'll pay what we pay. And that, that allows us a little bit more stability too, to deal with the, you know, ups and downs, which have been really prevalent in the market over the past 18 months. But that's just a little inside baseball there. I don't know if you, <laughs> if we want to talk too much about that, but we, we pay more, I guess, more per point for the coffee from the Philippines because it's definitional to who we are. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, for anyone listening, this uh, episode with Nick is going to actually come out coinciding, I believe, uh, with an episode on coffee commerce that I did with Jared Hales of Hasea Coffee Source. So that same week, there's going to be some overlap there with that. Let's change tax a little bit then. Well, if I said anything contradictory, just just pluck it out of there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think actually, uh, if I, rec- I I talked to him yesterday, so it lines up pretty pretty well. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things. I've, I don't think I've ever met Jared, um, or if I had, it, it, it wasn't a, a very, it was a very brief interaction. And that's just something that it's not unique necessarily to most. I mean, our, our, our approach, our nuance is going to be more unique, but people who respect the market, who respect uh, producers at origin, who put respect on the very beans themselves, you know, and are not just trying to commoditize um, like non-commodity coffee, you know, we're going to in general have the same sort of approach because that's kind of where we get to where we are. Well, and you're creating a brand and a product funnel for the long haul, not just to get the most profit today necessarily. And, you know, it's a longer vision, I think, over time. You know, it's, yeah. if it's better for them, it'll be come back to you in the long run as well, um, even from a, immediately as well, intrinsically, but also in the long term. Yeah, but there's, there's also times where um, you just kind of have to realize that it doesn't. One of my favorite stories about that was actually from when uh, Chuck Patton first uh, was working uh uh, really seriously getting into direct trade, uh, kind of at the outset of that craze before it became just tourist trips for a lot of people. And he uh, he worked with really closely with a couple farmers in Bolivia and made some trips down there and got some great coffee. And the coffee he brought in that he was able to secure did really well. And the next year, uh, he, he reapproached the same farmer and the guy was like, nah, I sold all my coffee to Sweet Maria's. <laughs> so that is the uh, the blessing and the curse of it is that if you're able to do something that's mutually beneficial, you also have to realize that sometimes that results in producers or other relationships kind of outgrowing and wanting to explore other horizons, um, whether it's a single farmer in Bolivia or, you know, uh, importers diversifying who's selling their coffee instead of selling all the coffee to one person. Same thing with, uh, you know, larger farms and things like that. There, There's always going to be a, a give and a take of, you know, the realism behind the scenes. It would be great if everything was, you know, copacetic all at all times, but as long as we can be amicable about any negotiations and, and transparent about anything that, you know, if somebody decides they want to move a different direction, that's, you know, that's, that's their decision. And, and we respect and live with all of that. I keep thinking to myself that, uh, the human part of, of, uh, of engagement of, of, uh, interactions and humanity in general is the unpredictable part. It's only dogs that we can trust to be honest with, uh, their feelings I at all times. That. We mentioned at the top, but you recently took first place at the U.S. Coffee Championship Roasters Competition in Boston. Congratulations. A huge achievement, I think, uh, by any standard. I also think it was a really cool really cool way to draw a lot of attention to the San Diego coffee scene. Mm -hmm. Just by you being there and being on that stage and, and then winning. I'm wondering, and I have... A little bit of an idea, but I'm wondering how do you train for a competitive roasting experience and how is that kind of different from what you do day to day at the shop um, or is it? Yes and no. And, and I do think it's interesting, you know, that there's there's all different facets of the coffee industry and we you know, talk about different marketabilities or things like that. And, you know, we want Mostra won a, a Roast Magazine's 2020 Micro Roaster of the Year. Chuck and Bird Rock won it back in 2012. Up the road, 
in Orange County. Uh, Portola Coffee won it in, I think, 2014 or 2015. Clatch Coffee had won it previously in Rancho Cucamonga, I think maybe 2010 or something. Uh, Jeff uh, PT's Coffee, who ended up buying Bird Rock from Chuck, won a Macro Roaster of the Year. So if you, if you count that one, in our little corner of Southern California, we basically have five Roaster of the Year titles. But still people think, uh, just like with the craft beer scene, people are always thinking, oh, but the Northwest. And it's like, all right, you know, that's cool. You can have rain and snow and we'll be down here with some great coffee in the sunshine. You know, shots fired, shots fired. No, it's not shots fired. It's, I, I met <laughs> some kidding. like, honestly, the, I met, I met great people from all across the country at the, uh, at, in Boston for the roasting competition. And I mean, even, a you know, the guy, the, there was a trio of guys from Portland, two of whom placed sixth and fifth in the competition. Uh, and, and we were all just, you know, the whole community was really great, but it's one of those things. It's just, it's not that. I'm I'm firing shots at them, but more so deflecting shots fired at San Diego, I suppose. But anyway, yeah. Um, to go, to go back to the to the question about uh, what I did or didn't do that was uh, different from daily roasting to prepare for the competition, I did have to find the competition roaster and uh, get a couple practice roasts on it because in years past uh, the competition had been sponsored by a different manufacturer who uh, manufactured a typical drum type of roaster. So as your listeners might be familiar with, there's a, a rotating horizontal drum with a heat source underneath it, some configuration of airflow going through the drum uh, to mitigate conductive, convective, and radiant heat and uh, different ratios depending on how things are set up and whether or not they're adjustable and all that jazz. The roaster sponsor this year for the competition uh, for for U.S. Coffee Champs Roasters Championship was Stronghold. It was a roaster I'd been long curious about because it looks like a, looks like an extra piece of the set from Star Trek: Next Generation. It's two uh, conjoined vertical cylinders, one that's a control module uh, and 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 houses some of the uh, the equipment, and then the other cylinder attached to it to the left is a vertical tower of roasting uh, with halogen as well as uh, agitation arms at the bottom and the malleability of the roaster is something that I wasn't used to. I mentioned earlier we roast on a San Franciscan 25 pound roaster at Mostra for most of our production roasts. Our roaster I can change the gas level and occasionally I'll play with the damper but that's about all we do. The newer models of San Franciscans have a lot more ability to change uh, air speed, pressure, uh, drum speed, things like that. Looking forward to getting into one of those soon, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Stronghold Roaster has the ability to change airflow, change uh, halogen for the heat source, and change the agitation speed or the the, um, the speed at which the, the bottom arms are agitating the beans. So there are uh, multiple ways that I could approach roasting the coffee beans, but the times that I went up to roast with a guy named Kyle in Cerritos, I can't believe I'm blanking right now. He's such an awesome guy. I think his company was called KT Specialty Packaging, and he just has a, a, a stronghold roaster as like almost his little uh, his little uh, side project toy. Uh, uh, they're building out a different coffee program, but so he had time for a lot of roasters like myself and uh, Rudy from uh, from down in Mexico to and uh, come in and roast on practice on it. And when I was doing practice roasts on it, and I brought up a 
couple different types of beans to roast on. I didn't really try to roast any good coffee because I just wanted to learn the how the machine worked, the tolerances on the machine, how far I could push it, how well it would settle into like, uh, you know, rapid decreases or drastic adjustments or things like that. So I roasted, I don't know, 25 batches of coffee and maybe one of them was good. But that goes back to, is it the preparation for the competition, something different than what we do on a daily basis? And what we do on a daily basis is preparation for the competition. There's always different factors to uh, run into with any roaster, especially an older one. And so a lot of times when we're roasting, I have to make adjustments on the fly. You know, reevaluate coffees as they age uh, or as the uh, seasons change. Not too drastically in San Diego, obviously, but enough that uh, a mostly open air warehouse is going to see uh, drastic changes. And, you know, it's like the, the difference between if you hard boil an egg at room temperature versus hard boiling it directly out of the fridge, it makes a huge difference, right? But that really is only like a 40-something degree difference in terms of the starting temperature. And when it's, you know, 50 degrees out in, uh, in early March in San Diego versus 90 in July and August, that's a 40-degree difference in starting temperature for the coffee beans, you know. So it is going to be a big difference. And everything, you know, just like I was saying earlier, my thirst for knowledge, I try to recognize as many variables as possible on a daily basis, I'm even down to looking at uh, every once in a while, we just reevaluate how we cup coffee, you know, because if we can't evaluate coffee properly, then how are we evaluating our roasts? So all of that rolled into the preparation for the competition. It's just as amazing to me that there are that as many variables in coffee as there are. I'm constantly being reminded at how many variables there can be in to getting a good cup of coffee that starts, you know, years, a year before, years before at the farm level, all the way until now. But you were traveling from here to Boston for this competition mm -hmm. where the temperature would have been quite drastic. But I didn't even think about how you probably couldn't actually even practice on this roaster at the same humidity and temperature levels that you were going to experience in the competition because of the time of year and just uh, the differences. Yeah, that's correct. And that's where the experience, you know, of just trying to, I guess, consciously roast every day, you know, it's, it's where that came in. There's, there's not a, there's not a time even, you know, I, I joked around how it was easy to roast the dark roast Brazil for stone, but when I was doing that, I was, you know, I was glued to the Cropster screen. I was, I was clacking the trier more than I should have because we don't really use that much anymore. But, you know, I was trying to soak everything in with that. And that's something that I still continue to do to this day. I mean, I'm still, even though <laughs> it still feels weird to say, even though I'm, I guess I'm the champ now, uh, as, as some of the guys at work are calling me. Uh, even, even, the, even because of that though, I'm still, you know, relatively novice roaster, you know, kind of expanding on my, this is my life from earlier after we roasted the stone coffee, the submission for the roaster, uh, micro roaster of the year for roast magazine, uh, went in and we were selected as one of the top three participants to send in coffee to, uh, see who would win roaster of the year. And so then Ryan and I 
I don't know, we probably cupped like 170 or 180 different samples of coffee trying to figure out what we wanted. Uh, we came up with a plan and uh, started roasting a bunch of different one pounders and, and developed what we wanted out of that coffee and then sent it in and won that. And after that, that's when uh, Mike, one of the founders of Mostra, kind of handed over officially the reins, calling me head roaster uh, in, I want to say, October or November of 2019. Qualifiers for U.S. Coffee Championships were February 2020. So I had been roasting for, you know, five, six months at that point. Was, um, you know, went in though, just like with the, the plan for the Roaster of the Year coffee, developed a plan for how I was going to approach U.S. Coffee Championships, qualified. I didn't, you know, do spectacular in qualifiers, but I made it. And then, you know, then the pandemic hit and any sort of uh, uh, ambitions of competing were way off for a long time. But then here we are, you know, this this April, I you know, will call it, I've been a roaster for a little over two years now, two and a half years. There's people out there that have been doing this for a lot longer that have a lot that they could teach me. And I'm sure that uh, everybody's individual experiences will shape their you know, psychology behind roasting. I don't like to call it roast philosophy. It's uh, that that almost sounds a little overarching and hoity-toity to me. I think most of us roasters are are kind of uh, more grounded than uh, than thinking of it like that. It's uh, it's technique and it's psychology going into desired results, uh, in, in, in my opinion. But that's just semantics. Okay, to recap. There is a part two to this interview. It'll drop on Tuesday next week. Don't forget, it's just as good as part one. Nick mentioned city and full city roasts earlier in this episode. We've covered those terms in our vocab sessions before, but as a reminder, city roast refers to coffees that are roasted through the first crack, and full city refers to coffee roasted a little bit longer just before second crack. First and second crack refer to literal cracking and popping noises, that occurred during the roasting process as the bean's internal temperatures rise. Generally speaking, city roasts land in the medium range and a full city would be closer to a medium dark. City roasts are very popular with third wave roasters because the coffee's lighter sweetness and floral notes are discernible. Yet the coffee still has some of the richer, sweeter tastes that have traditionally appealed to consumers. Full city roasts literally look a little bit darker and have a little bit of oil on the bean. The coffee will have a fuller body mouthfeel and an enhanced sweetness due to the longer caramelization period, making them perfect for mixing with steamed milk in a latte or cappuccino, or just as a black coffee. Now about that math problem. For some reason I did my math assuming the roaster only managed one pound of coffee at a time, and that would be insane. Moster uses a 25-pound San Franciscan roaster, so a 24,000-pound order from Stone Brewing would require roughly 960 to 1,000 roast sessions, assuming a near-perfect efficiency, which rarely happens. And that doesn't account for water weight loss. So roughly, and I stress that roughly, it would take 240 to 275 hours of straight roasting to fulfill that order. And that isn't accounting for grinding and bagging and so on. So I was way wrong. But still, it's a lot. And it was a life-changing order for Nick. It put him in a position to be immersed in the roast and to showcase his aptitude for the job. I really appreciate that Nick's view of coffee is wider than just the coffee in front of him. 
it routinely comes up on this show, that coffee connects us around the world. And that doesn't just mean coming to us. It means we can give back the other way. Good on Mostra for being willing to send goodwill down that supply chain in the way that they purchase coffee and make decisions on the Philippine coffees they're offering, despite the added logistical and financial challenges. In the next episode, we'll go further into Nick's roast championship experience, what made that moment special, and how he's getting ready for the World Championships of Roasting in Milan, Italy later this month. Check out all of the coffees Nick roasts on offer online at mostracoffee.com or follow at mostracoffee on Instagram. Then subscribe to this show's newsletter at roastwestcoast.com. I'll send this podcast to your email along with bonus content links and more. You can also directly help this show grow by choosing one of the paid subscription options. Monthly or annual subscriptions push this show forward in terms of quality, community growth, and it enables me to focus more on providing great interviews and Coffee Smarter episodes for you, and less on how to keep the lights on in the closet studio, which actually are off right now. Thank you for subscribing at RoastWestCoast.com, and thank you to my industry partners who've helped me build a foundation for this podcast, including Moster Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, Ignite Coffee Company, Ascend Roasters, Coffee Cycle Roasting, First Light Whiskey, Marea Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, and Cafe La Terre. Links to those amazing businesses, subscriptions, and everything else we mentioned on the show today can be found in this episode's notes or online at roastwestcoast.com. Thank you all for listening, for supporting this show and this show's sponsors, for reading the words that I put out in the newsletter, and for diving into the new column, The Bean Journal. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. For those of you headed out for a cup of coffee this week, please always tip your baristas and be sure to drink good coffee. everyone if you like the roast west coast coffee podcast you might also appreciate the i like beer the podcast listening to these guys is like being a fly on the wall of the pub with a few of your favorite mates having a pint these professional beer appreciators have plenty of stories to share on everything from the mating habits of penguins to their behind the scenes brewery experiences check out the i like beer the podcast wherever you are listening to this show about coffee or head to i like beer the podcast.com